Harry Spear was one of the first superstars to ever challenge the shallow water flats of the lower keys. He and Steve Huff showed the rest of the fishing world what could be done. They pushed the bar of greatness well past the rest of the field by winning most of the fly and all tackle tournaments. If you had either one as your guide in any of these tournaments, most likely you'd be seeing more fish than anyone else. Aside from their flats knowledge, their creativity and coaching skills were extraordinary. When I first met Harry, I didn't have a clue what my life would eventually evolve to. He became my mentor for seven years, grooming me, refining the art of casting, reading fish, feeding them, and ultimately catching them. When he left the Keys in 2003, he had amassed 43 wins. He not only left, but left fishing altogether and began a pipe dream of building a better boat. I hope you enjoy this story with one of the greatest fishermen this sport will ever know, Harry Spear. We broke everything. We broke lines, we broke hooks, we broke rods, we broke our minds, we broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. We just had a seven-hour drive over here to, do you call this the panhandle area? Stop choppy? Yeah, it's in the panhandle. Right. So what's considered the panhandle, the whole curvature of, of the state? Yeah, that's what I would call from Perry all the way to uh, Pensacola is that, that curve. Right. It's, it's uh, the panhandle. Well, it's, it's a beautiful drive. I mean, the vegetation and the rolling terrain... Mm -hmm. the, the the moss but one of the things that st that struck me is that there's a, a number of prisons and churches <laughs> what, what does that have to say about this area a lot of bad guys and the ones that aren't caught yet are church praying <laughs> yeah maybe that's true my next door neighbor across the street just got out of jail today he was a meth head and uh he's actually a good guy but you know drugs are just a bad thing well how'd you find this place um that's a good story. I told Kimberly about 10 years before we moved, let's say 93, I said, I got to find a way out. I, I can't grow old down here. I watched Jack Brothers, Jimmy Albright, uh, Bob Reineman, those guys just kind of wither, lose their business, get old, have to have help from other people to survive. And I didn't want that to be me. And I didn't have any wherewithal to to retire with 
I was just raising kids and spending all my money on that. Anyway, so I told Kimberly, I said, we're going to go find America. And this is America. And what does uh, America represent? Um, simplicity, rural, that kind of where people are conservative and um, kind of God-fearing, mostly. It's not everybody's from somewhere else which is wherever I lived was everybody was from somewhere else. I grew up in Tampa. Everybody was from the North, basically. Moved the Keys. Nobody was from the Keys. Craig Brewer. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Maybe a few guys were born and raised here. My kids were, but that's still, mm -hmm. you know, they're from just everywhere else. And I wanted to find a place where it reminded me of what I thought America should be. And this kind of fit the bill. We're going to get into your fishing here in a little bit, but talk about that transition out of the Keys. I mean, I remember yep. that you must have had a fairly high level of burnout because towards the end of our fishing, we used to fish long days. And I remember I could never sleep the night before fishing with you. I was so excited because you always found great fish and we always caught a, a pile of them. And I remember one of the last days fishing was like three in the afternoon. We normally fish till almost dark. Uh, and you were saying, okay, it's time. It's time to go. I said, what do you mean it's time? We got fish all around us. He said, well, we've been out here for eight hours. It's time to go. And that's when I felt like maybe you were starting to like, I would rather be off the water. I think a lot of that had to do with the commitment I made when I got married to my family. Um, I wasn't going to be an absentee father. And my best friend, Steve, was an absentee father. And it cost him his first marriage. Not that my marriage lasted too much longer after that, but um, I wanted to be home with my kids and my family. And so I, you know, I transitioned out of fishing all day long into, you know, kind of shutting it off at a certain time. And so it was, it was a combination of maybe the years and to your family. Yeah. And from what I understand, you're saying that your older daughter, Lindsay, mm -hmm. was starting to get a little rowdy. Yeah, Lindsay got, Lindsay got pretty uh, rebellious. And, uh, and that, it, living in Isla Morada, you've got that, what is it, up at Whale Harbor, that crazy place where everybody goes and swims naked out on that sandbar. And, and she'd be the first one there on a weekend. I have no idea. I hope not, but... <laughs> She was running with a crowd that was a little bit iffy. Right. And I don't know. I mean, I know people who raised their kids and stayed in the Keys, and the kids did great. Right. Um, I just didn't trust it. Right. Well, once you got up here, um, you were just speaking on the couch about how hard it was initially, you know, because now you don't have the daily income of being a guide you were making this transformation from a fishing guide to a boat builder. And tell me about the struggles of the finances and the family transition and a new home up here. It must have really been stressful. It was reinventing yourself is stressful. You know, I was a famous fishing guide with a great business. And I came up here and I didn't want anybody to know that I was a fishing guide. Why? Um, I just wanted to be hairy because in the keys, you know, I'd go, you know what it's like to have 
people coming up to you that you don't know that know you and hey Andy blah 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 hey Harry blah 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 and I just wanted to get away from that and so I came up here and started playing golf I bought and sold land is what I did for the first three years made a lot of money I'd buy big chunks of land put roads in there and green fields I made hunting properties and it was I would be doing it today if it if the market would have handled it it was so much fun getting on tractors and end loaders and uh excavators and just going out there and digging dirt and making shit so so this was a great sidebar initially um that you had because you were talking about your pipe dream of being a boat builder Mm -hmm. so my question to you is what made you think that you could be successful as a boat builder competing against hell's bay and Maverick and all these other great flat skiffs and, and the dolphin boat. You know, I'm thinking, if I were in your shoes, I'm going, how am I going to compete against these giants that already have such a great reputation? Especially Chittam now. Yeah, I I don't never, never felt like I was competing against those guys. Um, I'm a small, my niche is very small. Nobody else is doing what I'm doing, which is, you know, custom building boats. Everybody has our production building boats. And, um, and then I got to just do all the design work and the prototype work, which is what I wish somebody would hire me to just do that and pay me a shit ton of money. (laughs) I would love to do that. I'd much rather do that than produce a boat that I've already made the prototype and the molds off of. I mean, I would think that testing a mold or a hull mm-hmm. is very extensive work. I mean, you gotta build it, test it, if it doesn't work, you gotta rebuild it. Is there any way that anybody's ever thought of maybe like testing hulls in like a wind tunnel? I don't know about that. I'm very low tech, Andy. I All of my hulls are, I started with one, tweaked it because it didn't perform in a certain area and then it performed better in that area on the next tweak, and then maybe one more tweak to get it to where it ended up. And other than that, I just, I have a feel for what the bottom needs to look like to do what I want it to do. And honestly, the bottom of the boat is the boat. Right, sure. What meets the water, whether you're poling or running, that surface area is what makes the boat do what it does. For sure, that's the tool. That, yeah, well, that's the that's the area of the boat that makes it perform. And then the weight distribution is the other most important thing. You could have a great hull and put the weight in the wrong place, and it's not going to perform. Well, when I first met you, you were in you were in uh, in in uh, a Maverick, the Mirage, Mirage. Yeah, but everybody else was in super skiffs. Well, Steve. I was in a, I was in a super skiff first. And then what made you go to a, a, a Mirage? Um, it wasn't a make me. I helped Scott design a boat that would compete with a, become a polling skiff. He didn't have one. He had the master angler and a Hughes bonefisher and a Hughes redfisher. I kind of insulted him. I said, when are you going to build a good polling skiff? Well, I, well, I've got them. Now I said, no, you don't. Right. I said, you need to kind of copy a super skiff. I got him a hull, a super skiff hull. I said, make it a little wider in the back, a little taller in the back, a little taller in the front, and just 
use it and add on to it. And then you'll be different, but it'll perform well. So what was the problem with the super skiff? Nothing. It's a great boat. I was trying to help Scott build a boat. So I helped him design that. I actually just gave him suggestions. He did all, whoever did, made the tooling, did all the work. Right. And it was a pretty good boat. Wasn't as good as a super skiff, but it was a pretty good boat. It, right. It performed. And he took great care of me. I really appreciated him. He was a, he was a great benefactor to me. I mean, if I, I, all right, I'll tell you a story. It's a sad story and it's a story that's embarrassing. I was coming home from fishing. It's probably about 4.30 or 5 o'clock. One of my best friends is on the right side coming in Lignum-Vitae Channel, tarpon fishing, live bait fishing. So I've got, I can remember, Phil Gonzalez was sitting in front of me. It was a Mexican about that wide. And I couldn't see anything. I knew there was a channel marker up there, but I couldn't see it. So we're tooling along, just chatting. And Phil goes, hey, Harry, like this. And literally 25, 30 feet in front of me, dead off the nose of the bow. It's just piling. Oh, no. Oh, yes. So I turned as hard as I could to the left. The boat kind of tilted up on its side. I missed hitting the dead on the nose by about that much. And as soon as I hit the piling, I spun it as hard as I could to the right. And the boat went up in the air and then came down like this, hit the water. It peeled like six feet of the right front bow off the boat. You think that's embarrassing? Nobody got hurt, but it was like, holy shit for about three seconds. It was the scariest thing ever. My push pole was in like 10 pieces laying out in the water. The boat is peeled, the bow is peeled back, laying backwards. Everybody's all right. Now we have to drive to the Lorelei with like 200 people sitting up at the bar. Imagine you come in with a carnage. I went, came into the bar like this. <laughs> um, you know what? And Randy got my... So that's not the story. The story is Scott called him up. I broke my boat. Can you help me out? He had me a brand new boat, motor, and trailer at the Lorelei at 6.30 in the morning. That was Scott Deal. Yeah. That's a good guy. Yeah. Very good guy. I was so happy for him when he sold his company and he just shit-tunned it. It was just, what uh-huh. a great story. A hundred million is a great way to... Uh, I think it was like a hundred and fifty. Well, either way, it's a pretty good uh, it's a cash cow. But, you know, he started that company with that Maverick Master Angler, the tooling for that, no orders. And Mark Caslow... I guess did the production for him. Scott and his brother started that company. Scott just he's must he's just a really smart guy and he built that business and he bought Hughes Manufacturing, started building that. Then he designed that Pathfinder, that horrible little tunnel boat, but then he turned it into the Bay Boat Pathfinder. And that was a home run. Huge home run and then bought Cobia and then sold his company for just an enormous amount of money. That's a freaking grand slam home run. You are my hero, Scott. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I want to bring it back. Is it true that before you became a professional fishing guide, you want to become a professional jazz guitarist? I, all right. Because so I, I read that we, on your we website. Go, so we, we can go pipe dream. Because I wasn't that good, but I fancied myself that that's what I wanted to do. And I never 
could have been a jazz guitarist. My hands aren't fast enough. I'm not, not that coordinated. Luke, my son, he can play circles around me. He's unbelievable. But I just, I've struggled my whole life. I've gotten to be pretty handy guitar player and musician, but when I went up, I went up to upstate New York with a friend of mine who's an unbelievable guitarist, and I went up there and I just watched these guys play and I went, this is ridiculous. I have no capacity for this. So I went and became a fishing guide. Was that always, <laughs> was that always plan B? No, or? I had no plan B. I was a kid. So I was, what, what, how'd you come up with that dream? I'm gonna go to the Keys and become a fishing guide. It wasn't a dream. It was not a dream at all. I came back from New York. You got to remember, I grew up in sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And uh, I was a kid, Andy. I was a kid. I was Peter Pan. I was not a man at 23 years old. I moved, came back to Tampa from New York with no aspirations of anything. And my mother or somebody told me, Dale was in the Keys and he's a fishing guide. Lights on, I'm gone. Hitch, I'd hitchhiked up to New York with a friend, hitchhiked back with a friend, hitchhiked to the Keys, had $75, hair down in the middle of my back, a guitar, maybe a sack of clothes, maybe a paper sack of clothes, I don't even remember. <laughs> so you're speaking about Dale Perez. Dale, yeah, Dale Perez, who's lifelong friend since we were 13. And uh, he was down there, I went down there, spent one night with him, Got a job the next day, tucked my hair, tied it in a knot, put it under a ball cap. Got a job with this guy who's crazy, Ron, I can't remember his last name, drunk, but a boat captain, gave me a job. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. The rest is history. Well, you've got a, obviously a, a very large footprint in this world. And this podcast is about preserving history and, and great storytelling with the icons and legends of the game hall of famers what what is your most important contribution to fishing do you feel i mean more recently obviously your boat design but if you stand back what are you most proud of andy if i were totally transparent i don't feel that i contributed that much per se, as, uh, for example, Steve has done so much more for the community, for preservation and stuff like that. I, I was more selfish. Um, You're talking about Steve Huff. Yeah, yeah. Steve Huff, I'm sorry. Um, I, I was more selfish. It was more about what I could get out of it. And I'm not proud of that, but that would be more honest. Um, I do and did have the ability to figure things out and uh, make it work. And if that can be a contribution, you know, I and I made some flies that were really good flies for bonefish and permit and and tarpon. So you know, I'm I, I was creative. I've always been creative. So that kind of a mindset allowed me to figure things out. You know. I've always never been afraid to fail. I, for example, in fishing, and this is not answering your question, but I was fishing in a tournament with Tom Richardson, and we started out in up by the um, the cow pens, 
Cross Bank, which is, what, 15 miles north of the Lorelei, up in the bay. Nothing there. And we were just trying to catch release fish last day. I left there and ran all the way to the high school in Marathon. It's like an hour and 40-minute run and caught five. So that's, I'm not afraid to fail. Never. Right. And that, I think, was one of my biggest attributes for success. And so I don't think I, my contribution is just that I did well. Right. You know, I don't think I gave that much to the community. I mean, now I am, I think I'm helped in this boat design stuff. Um, you know, I know I'm making boats that people who get them really love. And some of them have had lots of different boats and say it's the best boat they've ever had. So I'm, I'm proud of that. Right. Well, obviously your, your story is still being written, but you're, this is a great quote that I heard, um, that you had, uh, said success is a gift. Excellence is the only thing to strive for. Yeah. What would have happened had you never been successful? Um, and you only strove for excellence, but you never won. You never got to the top part of being excellent. Uh, well, that's not my story. So I can't, I don't know what it'd have been like. It would have been frustrating as hell. I'll tell you that. Right. Because we all, that's why you strive for excellence because yeah. you want to win. Yeah. It's the only reason you, you, to be excellent is always about getting better and better. And then I can remember when I was younger, this is kind of interesting. There were some guides, I won't mention their names, but they were, they were good guides, but not great guides for M- sure. Mention names. You want me to? Yes. yes. Absolutely. All right. So Nat Ragland and Mike Hewlett, uh, guys that were getting all, we're getting these parties in marathon and I'm getting shit and I'm out fishing them. And I love you guys, but I was out fishing you. Okay. So, <laughs> and I'm going, when am I going to get mine? You know, it was like, when am I going to get mine? And I can remember Huff telling me when I started fishing tournaments, he said to me, he's, he's always been such a great friend. He said, uh, I said, Huff, man, I hook all these fish. I lose them. I do this and I do that. I'm never going to win one of these tournaments. And he looked at me dead serious as only Huff can look at you. And he goes, you're going to win a pile of these. You really think so, Steve? He goes, I know so. You know how we would do that? Sure. That kind of that look like that, we cocked over a little bit. I know you are. And that was just like confidence. So he yeah. he could tell that I had it. I couldn't tell it. And then once I'd won one, I thought, maybe I can win again. Then once I'd won two, then I won three. I went, you know, this is this is what I do. Right. Right. <laughs> I'm always curious about how, you know, great guides like yourself become so knowledgeable and have, you know, just know the tides and the banks and the the edges and the backcountry and the ocean and because I mean you basically came down to the keys and you said I'm gonna become a fishing guide. I'm I'm very interested in how you you know got started. Did Dale help you out? Did you? A lot of people say that they have this little circle and they know mm-hmm. this little circle and that circle expands. How did you figure you know the the banks and the flats out? Well, Dale certainly was. I would have never gone to the keys if it hadn't been for Dale. So. Dale, thank you. I love you, my brother. Um, he was, my older brother, John, got me to love fishing. Uh, 
Dale moved to the Keys, and I went to the Keys and followed him. So I would have never gotten there. I mean, it was, like I said, I was just a kid. I had no aspirations. I just fell into it. So I've always been had an insatiable appetite for knowledge, whatever I'm interested in. And when I moved down there, I literally felt like I'd died and gone to heaven. It was so beautiful, so much places where you, there was, you'd ride out there and never see anybody over in these islands and you go, I wonder if what's over there. I remember a quote that you made mention to me. This quote is from you speaking to me, obviously. We're running back to the Loreline and we're looking out at the Petersons. And I asked you this question. I don't know mm-hmm. if you remember when I asked you this. I, I'm, I bet you I know exactly what you're going to ask me. What'd I say? You were going to say, how did you learn this country over here? And I said, I saw a guy run through this cut one day, and I went, I wonder what's back over there. Yeah, you said to me, I <laughs> wonder what's over the horizon. Yeah. And then the next time I went out, guess what I did? I went there. Right. And, and I ran back. I just ran around, and I saw tarpon and saw all these banks, and I go, holy shit, how am I going to learn all of this? Right. <laughs> I remember one time we were fishing out there by maybe – bank or out there in the back country he said we got to go i said where are we going we're gonna we're gonna go for a boat ride sit down and we <laughs> ended up running down or something <laughs> and i remember we were fishing together with uh uh bokar in you know the bay bone yeah we leave ocean reef where'd we go Boot marathon. Key. Yeah, marathon. Boot key. Past marathon. <laughs> and I remember I dropped my wallet and, it, and, and the wind pushed it up against the you know, the bulkhead there. You didn't even beat, miss an RPM. I'm down there bouncing and trying to pick up my wallet and all my cash I and my harsh, credit cards. Wasn't I? Yeah, you were insane. Yeah, yeah, I was. And I remember you used to say, Where are we going to go? He said, We're going to go a half hour further than where, every, where everyone else is going to go. <laughs> and that was your game plan to find fresh fish, I guess. Well, you just, you know, I had, so try to answer your question a little bit more. So, Nikki, as soon as I started, I, it's, Stu Apt called me Captain Pole by the fish. Because I didn't care about catching all of the fish. I wanted to, especially when fishing was good, I wanted to know where they were. So I would pull through an area. I called myself a cream skimmer. I'd pull through, maybe catch one or two fish, I'm gone. I don't care, you know, I could stay there and catch more. No, I want to find out where there's other ones. So I just appropriated that for my guiding career until my, you know, when you start, let's say you have a thousand piece puzzle and the Florida Keys is like a 10,000 piece puzzle or bigger. You know, you just start getting a few pieces of puzzle and then pretty soon you can kind of see, oh, this looks like this and this looks like that. And, you know, all of this giant area starts shrinking I can remember the first time I pulled between Harbor Key and East Content. That flat is like a half a mile wide, all these valleys and stuff, and it's a mile long. And I'm going, how am I ever going to learn this flat? And then five years down the road, everything's just shrinking because you learn this place, this tide, they're coming down here, this tide, they're over there, they're over there, they're over there, there's a big blank spot here and there. And you just get to where um, you have a feeling of how things work. Different conditions, they're going to be over here. Low tide, they're here. In the spring, they come up on the banks here. In the summer, they sit over there. And all of this stuff just starts 
your brain just starts filling up with information. And I was fortunate enough that I could hold it. Now, I didn't write all that stuff down. It would have been great if I had, but I'm not a journaler. So, but, you know, we just figured stuff out. Sway. Steve told me one time after he'd been guiding 20 years, he said, I remember every single fish I've ever caught. And I went, yeah, right. And he goes, no, I do. <laughs> Photographic memory that lasts forever. How about that? We just did an interview with Gordy Hill. Do you remember Gordy? Uh, name, not really. He was on Big Pine. Mm-hmm. He was a uh, an orthopedic surgeon. He had uh, performed more hip operation or hip replacements at one time than anyone. Mm-hmm. He was up for a Nobel Prize. Nice. Um, for is actually uh, a blood infusion. But he was down in the Keys, I think it was in the late 50s, early 60s. Wow. He's going to be 91 in November in a number of days, and his brain is impeccable. Remembers everything. Unbelievable. His stories go on and on and on and on. It's like, are you serious? Mm-hmm. But some people just have that innate ability. Did you ever consult with Steve Huff or Nat Raglan when you first started, or Dale, or compare numbers and what you saw? Uh, no, not really. Steve and I were best friends, and we would go. This is how a conversation would go. Hey, Steve, I found a new place out in wherever, northeast country. Want to know where it is? Hell no. I don't want to know anything about it. I'll find it myself. And it's. I had a guy yesterday wants to buy a boat from me, and he goes, he goes. I grew up in um, Gulf Breeze, which is Pensacola, that island just over the bridge, going back towards Destin. He goes, I got a bunch of tarpon spots and this and that. You want me to tell you where they are? I go, hell no, I don't want you to tell. The fact that you told me they're there, I'll find them. When I go see my girlfriend, I'll go find them. <laughs> you know, don't tell me where they are. That's the most fun part. If somebody tells you where something is, then it's their spot. You know what I mean? No, that, that means you can't go there. Uh, no, it just yeah. means it's you. Uh, that's Huff's spot. That's Dale's spot. That's, you know, if you see somebody, if you find it, then even if somebody else has already found it, it's yours. Here's an interesting uh equation to this yeah a hunting friend of ours in aspen a very very good hunter great hunter good friend we'd never spoken about where we hunt last year nikki and i both killed a cow elk uh, together right at dark on the top of a mountain nice. we'd always wanted to hunt, hunt up there but normally we're hunting bulls but this is the second to the last night long story short after we killed these elk we're waiting you know for uh to process this the first elk and we hear these elk bugling. And we said, let's mess with these elk. So we started bugling and cow calling. We pulled these two hunters in. <laughs> it was your buddy. It was my, but my, our good friend. So now it's like, since we found it on our own, that's as much ours as it is his. Yeah. But had he told us that, you know, where these elk are, it's like, you can't go there unless you're with him. Bingo. Same thing with some fishing. Yeah, bingo. That's the, that's the deal. Don't. And there's so many people that fish. All they want you to do is give them a spot. And it's like, that's so lame to me. It's like, what is this old saying goes, give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. Teach a man how to fish and he'll feed his family for life. Something along those lines. Right. So why would you 
wanted just somebody to give you a fish when you could go figure it out yourself. Michael Guerin, that was so beautiful about him. Just, you know, he was a pain in the ass. I love Michael, but you know, he just figured every, he was figuring everything out way too quick. <laughs> well, he, you're telling me he spoke about bonefish. Tell me about that and in, in the DNA of the bonefish that uh, you'd made mention earlier. Well, I, so when I first started fishing in the Keys was in the early 70s. And I never caught an 11-pound bonefish probably for three, four, five years almost. There was a lot of five, six, seven-pound bonefish, a lot of them. You'd see where later on when you and I are fishing, you'd see a pair tailing or a single or maybe three or unusually four. Well, back in the early days, you might see 20 in the same spot. You'd see wad, 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 and they were all smaller. So as time went on, the numbers shrank, the places shrank. So their their historical places that they lived in, I think it works like this. Your best places, the most dominant critters are going to inhabit. You're not going to have the little babies inhabiting the best place. You're going to have the bigger fish, the stronger fish, you know, are going to inhabit the best food spots, the safest places and stuff like that. And this is just a guess, but it makes sense. You see it in nature is the way things work. Well, as time went on, the number of fish shrunk numbers wise. And so they could go in different places and more, and the fish got bigger, that the, the bigger fish got bigger, just period, you know, when I couldn't, first 11-pounder I caught, then I can remember the first 12-pounder I caught. Then we went out in tournaments and caught multiple. I caught two 13-pounders with Bogar one day on the last day of the tournament. Somebody said, you guys need to catch two 13-pounders to win. Well, we did, but we finished second. We were like in fifth place. We didn't do. We were horrible. And then caught like a 13-1 and a 13-4 and almost won on the last day. So those things didn't happen early on. They just didn't happen. So I think that as the number shrunk, the fish got larger. And then whatever happened to the fish, I have no idea. Pressure, um, food, just the environmental changes. Uh, Do you think those big fish were a different DNA possibly? No. They were just, old, they were just older. Older. It's just like when you go out in the woods or you see a picture of a, a like an eight by nine elk. How many of those do you ever see in your life? Right. None, but you know, they're, they're there. Somebody sees them. Sometimes they shoot them, mm-hmm. but you don't see that guy normally. He's an anomaly. Right. Unless you're in an area like uh, maybe Mexico, New Mexico, mm-hmm. where the winter and the summer grounds is very close in proximity. And so they don't have to work so as the hard. Winter, their winters are easy. And it's they have more feed throughout the winter because it's lower in elevation. Yeah. yeah. All yeah. the above. So, yeah. But still, it's unusual. You don't find that in Colorado. And, you know, you, you're not going to... I mean, you find a lot of elk in Colorado, but not generally as many great, big, huge ones. Right. So, but anyway, I think that's the same with the bonefish. Look at the Bahamas. All the number of bonefish. Look at the water. How much of that water is filled with turtle grass and, you know, place where all the bait fish can hide so much sand and stuff. So there, 
a lot of fish, but there's not as much feed. So they're right. sm they're smaller. What about the lower keys, Key West, Sugarloaf? I mean, they didn't have those 14, 15 pounders, uh, did they? Yes. They did. Not in the same numbers. I know guys that caught, I think a world's record was caught off Cutto. Didn't Michael I say think, that? I think uh, Michael uh, said that. Yeah, I think uh, Gordon Aaron. Hill caught. Uh, oh, in the contents or caught, something. Caught yeah. uh, five fish over fifteen pounds down there. Well, but anyway, I would want to see pictures and <laughs> scales to believe that. But right. but let me ask you this too: gigantic. I mean, I mean, all those tournaments were based in Isla Mirada. Do you think the the uh, the hub of big fish? Uh, became prevalent around Island Marauder because in the tournaments they brought all those big weight fish back and released them there. No, I think that, all right, if you think about Florida Bay and the estuary that is the Everglades and all that water that comes out and all of the, the lower salinity water that's in that environment, you get to lower keys and it's basically marine. Florida Bay is estuarian, so you've got the shrimps and the crabs, and that's their that's the, and everything grows in that environment of the inshore fishes. So I think that that's just the most perfect environment for them to get big and get healthy. Um, the, and an interesting thing about bonefish, and this is only hypothesis. This is not based on anything other than observation. I think that the bonefish that inhabited the flats around Harbor Key and the contents, I think they migrated back and forth to Nine Mile Bank. And the reason I think that is that talking to different guides, one day there'd be, they'd see 50, 60 schools around the contents. And you'd be around, I'd be, let's say I was in Isla Mirada, and there weren't that many fish around Nine Mile. And then all of a sudden, there was 50 or 60 schools coming across the Nine Mile Bank. You would talk to those guys, what's it like up there? And it wasn't as good. So that's only what may probably as a bonefish swims 15, 20 miles. And you see the way they swim. They right. swim five, six, seven miles an hour. So three hours, something like that. And they're from here to there. I think that those fish move back and forth. That small migration, I think, was a very regular thing. Speaking about bonefish, you were credited with creating the first toad fly, right? And it was a bonefish fly. Yeah, that's true. And what I were did. you what were you trying to create and mimic? <laughs> All right. So in those tournaments, a lot of times you put them in your live well and bring them back, and they'd puke up what they had in their stomach. And there was a lot of toadfish. They ate a lot of toadfish. So you'd see these. I said, "All right, I'm going to make a toadfish fly." It's sort of like a joke, <laughs> you know. And I just took that yarn and cut it kind of like a toadfish's head, put barbell eyes on it and some toadfish looking marabou and a couple feathers on it. And it was it was great. Pretty magic. <laughs> Same thing for tarpon. That 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 pattern just What do you think about the green? I mean the toad fly for tarpon was predominantly chartreuse. Well I think that's what you guys did. I never did that. Right. I never was a chartreuse guy. Uh, I didn't do that. I think you and Timmy and maybe other guys did that that color pattern. Yeah, Gary Merriman, yeah, uh, started that chartreuse fly. But yeah. when I when I first started putting that on, it was like these tarpon would not couldn't swim by it. Yeah, so They'd what? Attack it. What what color would you tie the toad fly on? Pretty for tarpon? much, pretty much um, 
neutral colors like tannish marabou, I would take writ dye. I'd get pink, tan, and mix it in a combination to try to make a shrimp color. And I was pretty good at making the same color. You know, I'd just use a little sprinkle of this and a little more tan and get this color. And so I'd do the marabou with that and then use kind of variant feathers that were not not grizzly, not the black and white, but the kind of the the ginger and white. Right. And put one of those on either side of it and then do that head and shit, it were great. Right. You know, I mean, sometimes you, you, you couldn't get it away from them. I mean, you throw it out there and yeah. <laughs> do you remember a time when you had to start feeding fish? Initially in the early years, you just show a tarpon to fly, he'd eat it. Do you remember when the transition when all of a sudden we had to really figure out how to feed that fish? Well, it's really interesting. That's a great sideline to explore. So when I first started guiding, I had clients like Bill Levy, who was if if Bill Levy hadn't showed up, permit wouldn't have been, wouldn't have happened. He was so it's like seventy days a year. All he wanted to do was catch permit. But you'd get Bill and guys like that, and they go come on, let's go over and catch a tarpon. They're, they're laid up over there. Why would I want to fish for him? They're so stupid. You know, anybody can catch a tarpon. And it was kind of like that, Nikki. When, when we first got there, you could throw a big old hook that made a big splash with, you know, yellow and orange or black and red. It didn't really make a shit of difference what you threw out there. And slick, calm, crystal clear, flopping in the water, splash, boosh. They were stupid. I know. I remember fishing the ocean a couple of years ago with my dad, and we're throwing these little polola worm flies. I'm like, God, they're so hard. And my dad's like, I remember when I fished here with Harry Spear 20, 30 years ago, we used to use big old eight, nine-inch black flies, and they used to come off the track and race over to the no, fly. No, no. The beaten them black and blue. Yep. That was my. That was the greatest oceanside lower keys fly I have ever, and it and it transitioned into the white with the yellow head. It was the one. Remember that tarpon we hooked in? Uh, that so this right. <laughs> I got to tell six, you that story. Six, oh yeah, it's six uh, pound. So we're fishing six pound test, trying to catch a world record. More, and we're pulling kind of along the edge of the channel on the edge flat. And here's a big old tarpon waking in the summertime with his tail and his dorsal out, and he throws this white schlappings with a yellow deer hair head that kind of pushes water. Tarpon eats it, whack. Immediately I start up the motor and I'm following this fish around. I'm trying to press him down in the water so when he comes up, he's gonna come up beside me. So anyway, I don't know how long we fought it, but a while. Finally the fish comes up right next to me and wham, I stick him with a gap. Whap, he flips me over the boat. I mean, he goes straight under the boat and like pole vault, the gaff goes like this, whoom, slams my head right into the bottom <laughs> in about three feet of water, comes out the other side, jumps, gets off the gaff, breaks off. I come out of the water. Your dad is howling, <laughs> laughing. It was so beautiful. You weren't upset at all. It was like this was great like... event. It was a big, it was probably 120 or 30 pounds. It, it was, was a good fish. Yeah, it would have been a world's record for sure. But he kicked my ass so quick and so fast. It was like wading in on a fight and somebody just going bam yeah, right <laughs> i was knocked out <laughs> One point. but what was interesting about that fish is that he ate the fly 
And when he ate it, it stuck his head out of the water, blew the fly out of the water, and the fly ended up stuck in his dorsal fin. Remember this? No. Oh, yeah. Stuck in his dorsal fin, so I broke him off. And then we took one lap through there, went way back up at the head, started drifting down again, and I said, there's our fish. There's our fish right there. And you got him to bite again? And then I threw it back in and got him to bite again. And that's I don't the remember fish that, that part. That's awesome. That's yeah. even a better story. Yeah. No, but that was that was how great it was fishing in the mud. Yeah. So the, tar- the, the story of how did the tarpon change, just like everything else, pressure. There were places where the tarpon, when we first found them, were in these super shallow, I mean, just like, so quiet a place and you start pressuring them and and they just move out and move out and then they get along edges of channels and they just don't they don't ever come back they never come back to where they were because it's just such a quiet sleepy place and if you bother them it's like anything else if you find elk in a certain place and you start pressuring them they ain't gonna come back right at least for that season but i remember when we first started fishing you would not fish the same place more than twice in this in a week i tried not to fish over the same fish because but you could do it back then because there were not that many guides and there were a lot of places right and there were so many places where we could go and our days were made uh, based on tides and uh, what we were hunting for. And tarpon were no different than anything else. You could fish the oceanside loggerhead for a while when the tide was high and first started to fall. Then you go out in the backcountry and fish the high tide, or you could fish the low tide in different places. And you just work your way around. And it was like you could plan a day. And then by the time I quit guiding, if you found fish, you better not leave them. You better pound them into Bolivian because somebody else will. If if you don't get them, somebody else is going to get them, and it was it lost its love, it, uh, the you, love of it you, for me. You don't you want know? to fish down there now. No, I don't. Want, I don't even want to see it. The last time, yeah. the last couple of times I've gone down there, it's I've seen my friends, and they look so haggard and worn out. Like I'm not having any fun. I, you know, you can read that in somebody. You can tell. Happy face, sad face. Right. And, uh, you know, it's just... It was... Um, it was beautiful while it was beautiful. I wrote an article for Teal Magazine last year called The COVID Time Machine. Mm-hmm. And they didn't like the term COVID, so they just called it the time machine. Mm-hmm. But I flew into Aspen in March. When I usually go out there for at least a week to 10 days. And they'd shut the ski area down that day. Mm-hmm. The airport had no planes zero no private planes no commercial planes the river was empty we had a chance to fish the river like i hadn't seen it in 60 years Mm -hmm. and then we got down to the keys we got to we snuck snuck into the keys before they had the gates open (laughs) and you couldn't see a boat from bow channel to key west for the next three weeks and the tarpon would come sliding down happy and high and it was just wonderful yeah and thank god we had this chance you know, uh, I had this chance to show Nikki what I grew Nikki, up with. Nikki, you were there then? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's so. I talked to Diego and he said the same thing. He said, I'm having the most fun of my life. Yeah. No, it's, um, it's, it's a different story. I mean, I still love it, but the successes are, you have to be satisfied with a whole lot less. 
Mm-hmm. And you know, Steve Hoff said, I think it was at a symposium when guys were set, talking about the old days, how great it was. In numbers. I remember yeah. this. I remember, yeah. And, and Steve said, well, how many tarpon do you need to catch in a day? Can't you catch one, jump one and catch one and, and feel like you've had a great day? It was very, I think it was a beautiful thing to say because, you know, for guys like me who, I had one day when I jumped, counted 57 different tarpon. That's a lot in a day. Mm-hmm. That's a lot for a month. Right. <laughs> well, but yeah. you know, and then you come back and you feel like you've been cheated because all of these people are there. And, and then Steve makes that beautiful comparison and comment. And it's just like, yeah, Steve, you're right. It's like, once again, I'm selfish. <laughs> I think the Instagram, um, Facebook and all that is really trying, it's, it's ruining the perspective of good and bad. Mm-hmm. I, I So honestly, I think that GPS, Instagram, Facebook are all stealing from the people who love fishing and love the environment. And I'll explain that because all you young people who are addicted to this stuff, listen to me, please. The GPS steals from your ability to look at the environment and figure it out with your eyes and feel it with your feet and with your push pole and just look out at it and know that this is an avenue, this is an avenue. If you look at that instrument, it cheats you of that. You're looking at a small area that's covering hundreds of acres, if not more. And you're looking at that and determining what you're going to do. When in reality, you're designed to be able to figure that out with your mind, your feet, your hands, and your eyes. What you feel, what you see, that is what makes it a beautiful thing. That machine It might help you get into an area, but take your eyes off it as soon as you get in there. And then Instagram and Facebook, that idea of, look at me, I've done this, look at me, or look at her, she's done that. It is such bullshit. What you really want to do is go out there and enjoy it. Who cares who knows what you've done? In fact, if you can do it and nobody ever knows of it, it's even way better you've got something that you can treasure instead of try to brag about it. It just annoys me to no end to see what people have done with this great creation that we have trying to prove that there's something. It, I think it's just, it's sad. It's sad because, it's sad. too, you see what's happening with young people. Uh, one girl gets more likes than another, so now her confidence is shot. And as a fisherman, you have this great fish, and you might want to show it, I mean, I, I can't remember the last time we showed a fish, you know, on the stuff that we do. But it, let's just say you do get a great fish, then all of a sudden somebody's got a bigger fish. And so now the number of likes and this and that, it diminishes everything. Yeah, it's not, it's not really what this... Nature is supposed to be something that you can go interact with. Mm-hmm. And it's real personal. It's like being in love. 
you know, when you go out in nature, I saw this and I never told, I've told a couple of people I saw this. I was going to play golf at St. James on St. James Island going towards Carabelle, in between here and Carabelle. And I pull in to the drive to go in there and it's early in the morning. It's gray, but it's, it's light, but it's gray. And I see these critters laying in the road and I go, raccoons. And I stop my truck. All of a sudden, this mother bobcat stands up. She stretches her legs and they're the, her kittens are hanging on her titties. There's four of them. And they wander across the road and I go, oh my God, look what I just saw. I've never, how many people have seen that? And you know what? I saw it. I got to behold that. You don't have to show somebody else you did that. You know, you tell- To make you feel that much better. Yeah, it'd be like telling your friends that you had sex with your wife and how awesome it was. No, forget that crap. That's yours. Right. That's, you know, personal stuff. And the more people, if people could do that with, with nature, it would be, there'd be less pressure on certain places. Because when you start Instagramming and saying, I caught this and this in the keys, then, oh, I'm going to the keys. So that just puts more pressure on the environment. But it, what it also does too, it's, it's saying, you know, from an out of town or someone who's never caught a bonefish or tarpon or whatnot, they say, I want to fish with that guy. Because mm-hmm. they want to put a number to justify how good they are. Mm-hmm. There, there's the so guy. much competition nowadays, especially there, and it's so crowded. For new guides, they think that that's a great avenue to say, "Oh my God, I caught ten, and then you know some Joe from Tennessee is going to come down and say, "Oh, I want to book him. He just caught ten today." I can't argue with that. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a tool for building a business, but it's also it's a double-edged sword. It cuts one way and it cuts the other. You know, it's it's like your personal attributes, your character traits can be your greatest strength. Whatever your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness. You know, it's what makes you do this makes you do that. <laughs> and so it, I just think that all of that stuff, if you can temper it down and learn to be, I guess it's humility. Being, being able to be humble rather than being braggadocious. Well, also, too, it's a new world in that a lot of these guys are getting sponsored. So the sponsors want to see yeah, these great fish, and they get likes, and now you got 30,000 people that are following your, pod, your Instagram account. It's just... I got it. I got it. It just seems to me that like everything is getting cheated. I'm a, I'm a dinosaur. What can I say? You know... I, I went out in the last ice age. So, <laughs> you know, don't listen to me, but I still have my, my feelings about it. For sure. And I think that, you know, they're relevant. They are relevant, even though um, I, can't, I can't fault somebody for trying to build a business. Right. You know, I'm Michael Guerin and Kevin Guerin. They used the internet to build their business. I, it was like two years and Ke- Michael had a great business. How the hell did you do that? It took me like seven or eight years to have a decent business. Right. So, you know, that communication, it works. And if you're doing it in a good way, it works even better. So, yeah, 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 I got it. But I still find it. I think it's cheating yourself and cheating 
your clients. Because whenever you're putting something out that the community can see, you're putting pressure on what you just did. Is that true? Or yeah, not? I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you did that elk hunting, can't, I, no, I'm not. I'm not trying to. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you. I no, agree no, with you. Yeah. Yeah. So, I know on the on your phones, if you don't turn off your geolocation on it, people can go with an app or whatever. They can find out exactly where that picture was taken. So I've always told my friends, "Hey, man, if you're taking pictures of fish, you better turn whatever that thing is off." Mm-hmm. I don't take any pictures of it and see it out, so I don't have to worry about it. But did the fishing up here influence you to to find this as your as your new home from the Keys for fishing up here? Yeah, uh, or is it, it just the town, I, or was it the fishing no, as well? No, no, no. I had a client, Walter Armistead. His dad built the first house on Saint George Island, which is over the bridge in East Point, right just before you get to Appalachia, and it's beautiful out there. And so Walter grew up here. And he was a client of mine, and he said, you know, Harry, this was when I was trying to make up my mind, where am I going to go? How am I going to get out of here? He said, you know, uh, that area up there isn't the greatest fishing, isn't the greatest hunting, isn't the greatest living, but it's good on every aspect. So Kim and I came up here. Lindsay transferred from Queens College to FSU. She wanted to be an interior designer or something. Anyway, she didn't end up in that major but she moved and so we came up and we hung with walter and jolene his wife and we looked around all up here and i went oh my god i like this and i said kim what do you think she goes yeah we can do it so we put our house for sale sold it moved up here here. what would you uh excuse me What advice would you give somebody who wants to fish on their own, do it yourself, where there's so many guys out there that are really trying to take ownership of everything? How how do you how would you proceed if you were somebody who wants to do it, they can't afford guides? What advice would you give them? Um I would say first and foremost, try to figure out stuff for yourself. Don't be dependent on what other people do and what they know, because I don't care who you are and where you are. There's always different ways to do it. For example, Isla Morada, everybody fished the back country of Isla Morada, bone fishing on the incoming tide. I said, screw that. I went back there and there'd be boats everywhere. Said, I'm going to learn it on the falling tide. And I literally owned that place on the fall. The only people, two guides I ever saw out there on Falling Tide was Eddie Whiteman and Steve Huff, ever, and mostly nobody. And all these tournaments that I won where people thought, oh, he's going down the lower keys, that's why he's winning. Mm-mm. Falling Tide, backcountry, Rabbit Keys, Cluet Key, Arsnicker, Nine Mile Bank, all those, all those flats that came in on the tide went off on the fa- high tide and came back on the falling tide. We, Bokar and I had some fishing back there in some of those tournaments that was absolutely ridiculous. Nobody within 10 or 15 miles and fish tailing everywhere falling tide. I remember Steve Huff and uh, Dustin speaking one time and they were talking about a certain spot and uh, 
And Steve said, yeah, I love it on this tide. And Dustin said, really? Well, I like it, I like it on the other tide. <laughs> yeah. You know, so teach their own. Yeah. Obviously, if it, so yeah. that would be my advice. You know, go figure it out yourself. Don't be intimidated by people, but be respectful. You know, if somebody, and this is a, unfortunate, there are a lot of guides that act like they own places, which is complete bullshit. They don't own nothing. It's America. It's all ours. That water out there is ours. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's ours. So, you know, people try to intimidate other people. They did it in the Keys. They do it up here. And it's it's unfortunate. But for a do-it-yourselfer, spend time watching how other people work. If they're guides out there fishing, don't crowd them for sure. You know, what most people think is I'm not crowding you is crowding you. You know, for, in some places, 400 yards is way too close. A half a mile, most places is pretty good because the fish are going to come by. They're going to bump off of you or bump off of somebody else. And then they've got to settle back down. And if if you're too close and they bumped off of you, the person, if he's too close to you down current or down condition, the fish aren't going to bite. They're already, they're still wary as they can be. So the greater the distance you can have between people, especially tarpon fishing where they're swimming a track down the ocean or down a set of banks, up here it's very linear. It sucks because it's linear. There's not in and out like in the Keys. You can go in the back country, you can go in the ocean side. You can move around, you can find just completely different fish. Here at the basically, the fish are either turning in a, in a, in a fairly small area or they're swimming down and they, if, if I can see another guide in front of me, I don't want to fish behind him. I want to be first. Yeah, and I'm willing to go to a crappy place to see three rather than sit where I might see 10 or 15 shots and be behind somebody. I just don't, doesn't work for me. Right. I don't, the last thing in the world I want to do is look at your butt. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> is there much of a tarpon fishery in the winter months when it gets really warm? Here? Here. When I first moved up here, it was unbelievable. It was, uh, the fish were so relaxed there's very very few people fishing for them there's a few guides now there's about 15 regular guides up here it's hard tarpon fishing when you get it right freaking awesome luke and i had a day this year where we we landed six landed six now we didn't grab everyone by the face but we got them up by the boat and sure snatched them off and you know four of them were over 100 pounds that's that's pretty great fishing is is it hard for Luke to uh, be in the business now with it being as crowded as it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What He's kind of frustrated. What kind of fr yeah, what kind of frustrations does he express to you? Well, the fact that the fish he can go, his biggest frustration is he does not have a client a solid clientele of all good anglers of anglers that can get it done. And this fishery up here is like basically like the ocean 
in the Keys except with more color in the water. So if you fish up here with the color in the water, if you do it right, if you go, you know, whoosh, Cross your face. you're gonna get you're rewarded. Gonna, yeah, and you know, when you get a guy that, you know, it's here, it's there. So he gets frustrated with his anglers and lack of ability. And, well, he's just wishes he had better anglers. And, sure. I can agree with that. Right. <laughs> you, know, you, want to, you want to be successful at yeah, some point. Yeah, look, I looked forward when I was fishing with you. I'm going, oh, I'm fishing with Andy. We're going to kick their ass today. <laughs> and, you know, and then some guys, you just got to go, well, I'm going to go have a good day. I'm going to have fun. And Lucas, you know, he's 26, but he's been guiding for like seven years. And he still doesn't. He's got a few good anglers, but he doesn't have. Top, top I mean, he's dying. Oh, I wish I could get Nikki on my boat. Or Andy. <laughs> so, so I've never fished up here. What's a great day number-wise? How many shots? 40 or 50. Really? Wow, that's really good. Yeah. I mean, there's days up here where they just freaking pour. They pour. I mean, it's like they start pouring and they, can't, they don't quit. And they're, they're strings and they're singles and pairs and they come. See, early in the year, they basically go backwards we call it backwards. They're going from west to east. Mm -hmm. But about around the beginning of June, they, they come, come this back. way. And there's a little transition zone when they're going both ways. So you got two different ways you fish. Early in the year, you're fishing a bank where they're coming this way and coming to you. And then later in the year, you're fishing where they come this way. And there's, there's certain places where, oh, it's so sweet. If you if you got it and it's right, it's just sweet. You know, I mean, it's lined up. It's like fishing Buchanan Bank in a bunch of places. Wow. You know, everything's coming right here with dirty water, with colored yeah, water. Yeah, yeah. Do, sure. you, do you do you have to have full sun, or do they push a wake, or when it's overcast? How Luke, you ought to see Luke find wakes. I so I used to be able to see fish before anybody. I could be sitting down. And see them before anybody on the bottom of the boat here comes some i go out with luke and it's like i'm fighting so hard to see I before know, me too I, i'm I in am. the front he's in the back and he goes dad you see that way <laughs> no not only that he'll say dad you see him at 10 o'clock coming yeah i won't see him for another two minutes yeah when i finally see him it's like where are you oh well, my god our, uh, you know our eyes we've lost our cones and our rods we're they're, they're going diminishing as we get older it's like 42 my eyes started going right my so, reading eyes were going uh, well your your eye the yeah. whatever what's the the lens part starts growing it's adding on so it doesn't flex as easily so in and out isn't as quick whereas when you're younger you instantly focus instantly there instantly here it doesn't matter you see everything now with glasses you know blah 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 and, we see like shit. Yeah. You know, once you get your eyes on it, you're not going to lose it. But right. getting your eyes on it takes a longer time. And it's just, uh, getting older sucks, but it's still, hey, we're still in the game, bro. Yeah, we're still I caught catching. three that day. Luke <laughs> caught three. That was awesome. You know, I felt like a stud. <laughs> it's it's the best when we're elk hunting and, and we hear bugle and my dad goes, 12 o'clock. I go, no. Back, back it's, over it's, here, but it's 180 really degrees. It's always difference. 180 degrees because if I hear him coming from here, it's not, no, he's over here. No, he's completely 180. <laughs> so I'm it's, stuck in the same so, thing. We're, we're turkey hunting with Luke. 
Same thing. Oh shit, I'm walking through the woods and Luke goes, You That's know. what he does. I'm getting hearing aids. Yeah, I got I'm an, not getting. I got, a, I got an appointment with Costco in two weeks, <laughs> just anyway, because of elk bugling. Well, I mean, tell me how that works out for you. I'm I'm kind of resistant to that. I'm just kind of like, okay, I've had my day. I'll go in there and let Luke tell me where to go. You know, we were we were turkey hunting. Oh my god, turkeys are amazing, and I've never really done it until this year in the spring. So I'm with. A buddy of mine, Steve Wimberly and Luke, and we're in the turkey woods. And first of all, we're walking, and Luke goes like that. And Wimberly and I are walking by. He's like 60. We don't hear shit. You know? And Luke's going right up here. So we walk a little farther, and Steve goes, I know these woods right here. We need to get over here. We're going to get on this ridge. And we get over there, and I'm supposed to shoot it. So we're sitting there, and Steve doing that shit and everything and here comes this turkey i'm seeing this blue head bobbing and i go is that it steve looks at me <laughs> like that you know so i'm tracking him tracking him and all his head bounces up and down i can't get a shot at him it's just not happening and all of a sudden i can get a shot at him but my rifle is like right up next to luke so i go luke or i didn't say luke i just looked at him he's looking at me go like you know, like you do it and he goes or one, you know, shoots him and turkey falls over. And I go, oh my God, that's awesome. Those things come in like they're just, they're like elk, except they're birds. Yeah. They're so cool. That beautiful that vocalization beautiful is unbelievable. No, yeah. It is. And uh, Luke, I swear to you, between elk hunting and turkey hunting, I bet you he spent 50 to 100 hours on each one learning how to call. Mm-hmm. he'll sit there and listen to it and sit with his calls and call and call and call. He goes, what do you think, Dad? And I go, I'd come. <laughs> I tell you what, it's the, it's the most exciting thing I've done as an outdoorsman is calling elk and, and harvesting them with an arrow. Yeah. It is by far the most exciting thing. Doesn't even compare to tarpon fishing in no. my book. No, no, because and I, I, let mammal. me tell you're you my reason with... why. One, you're going to get... If you get two chances in a year, would be awesome. Maybe, you know, if you're on private land, maybe four. But you're not going to get 30 shots. No. You're going to get one, and it's going to be, the timing has got to be so critical. Everything has to be perfect. And then you might get him. You might miss. You (laughs) might get him, you know. I went three years without a shot. Yeah. It's hard. Well, we're, Harry, we've we've covered this great spectrum, and, I, and I've told, I tell everybody that you know you were my mentor. We fished for seven years together before Is we ever fished a, tur- a tournament. Yeah, oh, seven before tournaments. Yeah, um, where, what would you like to cover? I mean, we've we've had a nice little you know spectrum here. Um, I'd like to kind of tell people what it was like for me when I moved to the Keys. What it what it looked like because you'll never see it again it's no question unless you know unless man gets eliminated and we get a thousand years or a hundred years or whatever it takes for everything to repair itself so when i moved to the keys when i first went to the keys i was still in college i was a freshman and we parked on the west side of seven mile bridge and walked across those three little bridges there 
and the water was crystal clear. The turtle grass was three feet tall. You could look down in the water. There was giant barracudas. There was permit. There was just big loggerhead sponges. You look down there and it was like, I've never seen anything like this. I didn't know that anything like this existed. Then I moved to the Keys in 73. And I can remember the first time I went in the flats was with Dale. And we went out, the first place we stopped was on the west side of Water Keys in Content Basin. And we're pulling down there and Dale goes, there's some bumfish mudding coming towards us. You got them? Snidely, you got them? No, I ain't got them, Dale. Snidely, they're 50 feet. You got them? No, I ain't got them. <laughs> Finally, I saw them. I figured out what I was looking for, you know, until you see them. But that whole environment, it could blow 20 miles an hour and the water would be crystal clear on the windward side of the islands. The turtle grass was 18 inches to three feet long. No diatoms on it. it was dark, dark green. The Isla Mirada backcountry, we called it the ooze. It was black. You couldn't see a tarpon laid up in slick, calm water 15 feet in front of the boat, literally. We'd be polling back in, like in Manowar Basin, be hundreds of tarpon. You'd see them bloop here and there, just creeping along. Right under the bow of the boat, heart attacks. I can't tell you how many times I thought I was going to die. My heart bit so hard, just boom, like that from something blowing up right under the bow. So, <laughs> and then, it, you know, the environment just started changing. So you had this thing that was still pretty pristine. It started changing with Army Corps of Engineers, those cursed body of government workers that started trying to make something happen, you know, do something good. All they did was screw things up, digging ditches and canals and changing water flows to try to make things better. <laughs> screw up, they did. Anyway, so they, it started then, but the environment hung on and it started diminishing probably immediately after that but i didn't get there till early 70s and it was still great you could see some days several thousand tarpon you could see several thousand bonefish you could see hundreds if not thousands of permit i never saw thousands but i saw wad after wad after wad after wad maybe 500 800 fish in a day so you had this just this amazing environment with there was less than 30 people in South Florida in the Keys with skiffs when I started. Imagine that. Imagine the Florida Keys with that and a perfect, almost perfect environment. A few motor scars in some areas, but not even that. You know, just this beautiful environment and nobody doing using it. So that was such a beautiful thing to be able to partake of and you know looking back at it of course you don't know what it's going to be like 50 years from now what you're going to think about it but i just feel like i was given a huge gift dale led me down there and then i figured it out and was successful at what i did and it was uh it was an amazing journey it's just such a it was such a spectacular place and it still is it's a shadow of itself but it's still alive the bonefish are coming back 
if it could just get a break, you know, I mean, with 20-some million people in Florida, I don't think it's going to get a break. Florida's a great place to live, you know. We've got all this coastline, and there's just so many people interacting in and around the water. But it's still, you know, still a wonderful place. What do you think about I, it? I love going to the Keys every spring. It's a little bit aggravating after being down there for 40 years. But now I, I realize how to make it work for us. Yeah. Nikki, Nikki and I have the best six weeks of, of our spring and summer until fall comes. But we love going to the Keys and going tarpon fishing. You yeah. are so lucky, both of you. I, I envy you. I wish that I could do that with my son or my sons every year and go down there and hang out and just fish every day fish every day and not not worry about you know i don't have to produce anything because i'm not getting paid for it you're not guiding <laughs> you're fishing you're just fishing and you both of you guys are great fishermen so if you get opportunities you're going to take advantage of them if they can be taken advantage of sure and 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 we do like most luke, of the time we do not always and with luke you know guiding it's you know he's stuck with guys that are farmers you know what i mean i mean, they're great guys maybe but they they just don't have the skills they don't they're not you andy or you nikki who've grown up with this and got great hand eye coordination i mean between your dad and your mom, how could you not have great coordination? <laughs> and your dad has just always been you, Chris Parkening, and Glenn Flutie. The best, best fly casters, best fishermen for, you know, that the opportunities. Bill Boone was great. He wasn't his he was played on the University of Texas golf team. He's great hand-eye coordination, but not quite, not quite what you developed. And uh, Tom Richardson, also a great fisherman, but, you know, not quite. But you guys, the three of you, I was fortunate enough to have pretty great anglers. Not all the time, but enough that I could, it could happen. You know what I mean? If you, if you guys were on the boat, shit was going to fly. <laughs> I remember we came, I remember one day we came to back to the house and, uh, and we had done really, really well in this one basin. I think we caught five big fish. And you said to Kimberly, "How is?" she's asked us, how was your day? And you go, it was a gold cup day. Yeah. And I remember asking you, what was a gold cup? And then you said five weight fish, you know, five fish over, or if gold or weight fish is over 70 pounds. And that's from the first time I, I started connecting with tournaments and, really? you know, the terminology of a weight fish. That's and the first time we were bone fishing, you stuck your push pole in the water, you know, and you pulled it out, and I saw that little plume of mud. He said, "Now that's that's a mud. That's what we're looking for." I mean, mm -hmm. that's forty years ago. It was you, yeah, trying to teach you the yeah. kind of that just the basics of uh, of of the game. Yeah, that, I think that for me in my guiding career, that was my strongest suit was teaching. Yeah, I could articulate what was happening or what needed to happen. And the timing of it and the words and the, the gestures and whatever worked. Because I, I took literally blind people, no eyes in their head, and caught fish. Yeah, you were and, great. And it's, there's, that level, that skill level is, everybody doesn't have. No, absolutely not. 
I have two more questions for you. If you had one more fish to catch, what would it be? And what, I, what would the scenario be? Where would you catch it? I want to go wading, and I want to catch one more giant bonefish somewhere in the Florida Keys. <laughs> <laughs> I have never had Rick Ruoff and I had this game we played. We met each other when we were both like 25 or 26. He was the president of the Guides Association. Steve invited me to Isla Mirada to go with him, and he was a member. And it was he was the only Lower Keys guide in Isla Mirada Guides Association, and then I was the next one. And uh, Rick and I hit it off right from the get-go. So we started fishing together, and we de- I developed that epoxy fly for permit, and then I tied some for bonefish which was pretty awesome. The first day we went fishing together, we went to Cross Bank. And I said, use your favorite fly, and I want to try this one. And it was a, just an epoxy fly, little for bonefish. He throws beautiful tailing fish. Shit, nothing happens. I get up there, throw out there, catch a 12-pounder. He gets up, nothing happens. I throw out and catch an 11 and a half. Give me one of those flies. <laughs> and then he started tying them. And literally, that I think the original ones because there was nothing hitting the water like that on a fly. And the sound of it, Andy, it was amazing. If the bonefish was four feet from where the fly landed, you know how bonefish goes along in his tail and his dorsal goes up and down? Right. That fly would hit the water and their tail and their dorsal would do this. They'd go straight up in the air and they'd stop for a second and then go right to it. It was like, it was better than bait. We caught everything. Everything. Rick and I caught everything. We caught nine one day in the morning and in the evening, and the smallest one was 10 pounds. Nine. The good, the good old days. The, well, with a great fly. Yeah, and, the, and, and knowing how to use it. Right. And Rich, Rick one day bet Richard Stanzik $1,000 a fish, a shot, that he could beat him. You can fish shrimp and crabs. I'll fish my fly thousand dollars a fish wow. and wow. guess who would have won i guarantee you rick would have won it was way more deadly than bait because you could throw it you know you're a good cast hard yeah you you throw it in there and everyone it they just go it was it was so easy <laughs> when we invented that but that um that scene of of those days and and that being able to figure that stuff out and being a partner in learning and then figuring it out was just it was just so cool so cool what what was your other question my last question is you asked steve huff this and i thought it was a great question when it's all said and done how would you like to be remembered oh I wouldn't like to be remembered as being, you know, uh, so per se, a fishing guide. I'd like to be remembered as a good man, um, a person who who helped others, who helped his family, who loved his family, who was able to teach others and give back to what my society, which is a fishing community. And, uh, yeah, I'm, you know, the gift is, the success is that all of the accolades and the, the history and stuff like that.
but what what people think of you, the way they speak of you, that's that respect is the the key. You know, I mean, you could have a great reputation or a horrible reputation, and having a good reputation and being considered as a good human being and good to your your sport and whatnot. Yeah, that's what I'd love to be remembered as. Very well said. Thank you. Thanks so much, Harry. Thank you for having I've, me on Millhouse Productions. <laughs> I've wanted to meet you for a while. I'm glad I, we came up and did a podcast with you. It's been I've I've just heard so many stories, so it's good to put a face to the name. And well, I would hope sincerely from my heart, the deepest part, the softest and most loving part of my heart, that this is just the beginning of what we get to do in the years that your father and I have left, that you'd get to meet my son and we would get, as two families, get intertwined and be able to enjoy some of these great things that we both love, we all love. Mm -hmm. Lucas is addicted and as good as you can imagine. So I would... And he's wanted to meet you. He's so sad. When I told him you're going to be here, he's going, tell those guys, I, I so wish I could have been there. So I, you know. We'll make, we'll it, make happen. it happen. Yeah. yeah. Let's make it happen. Let's do some things together in the future. I don't care where it is, what it is. Let's do it. I, I want our families to be able to be, you know, interconnected because it's sort of like, should be, it's destiny should be this way. Right. Yeah. Sharing the love with her. Yeah. You know, with her young. you know what I loved and gave to you, what you've given to me and given to Nikki and I've given to Luke is it's all intertwined. How many people can say that they've ever experienced anything like what we've experienced? It's a, such a small group of people. Right. It's infinitesimal. I mean, compared to the number of people on this planet you can't even put enough decimal point and enough zeros with a one after it to get to it. It's right. that small. Yeah, and I so agree. we we just have destiny needs for us to be connected. That's just what I'm going to say. Amen. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Harry. Yeah. Thank you, Nikki. Absolutely. Thank you, Andy. Of course. Loved it. If you're not saying "Wow" right now. Listen to this podcast again. You missed something. Harry is unquestionably one of the greatest there ever was to push a boat across the skinny water of the Florida Keys. Fishy doesn't come close to defining his spectrum. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do us a favor and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.